Hello again, and welcome to our Governing Health podcast. I'm your host, Michael Peregrine. As we all know, nonprofit organizations and their governing boards are, by the nature of their charitable status, subject to the authority of the state attorney general. She, or he, is the state's chief legal officer and has responsibility for supervising and safeguarding the assets of charities located in the state. The Attorney General has broad statutory and common law powers with respect to those duties. The Attorney General is supported by dedicated colleagues who work within what is normally referred to as the Charitable Trust Division. Those regulators collaborate nationally through an organization known as the National Association of State Charity Officials, or NASCO. NASCO is an important organization to the extent that it helps support and coordinate the efforts of state charity officials on a national basis and educates the charitable public on matters such as individual state charitable trust office responses to issues of importance to charitable organizations. NASCO also publishes an annual report on its enforcement activity. These are important efforts worthy of understanding by the nonprofit healthcare sector. And to help inform the sector on the role of the state charity official and these NASCO initiatives, we're delighted to be joined by our old friend, Leslie Friedlander. Leslie has been an assistant attorney general in the office of the Texas attorney general since 2012 and is currently the president of NASCO. As an assistant attorney general, she focuses largely on trusts in the state matters affecting the public interest in charity. She's been lead counsel on several breach of fiduciary duty lawsuits against nonprofit officers and directors, resulting in over $2 million in damages that were distributed to the charitable sector. Leslie joined the Texas Attorney General's office after operating a successful solo estate planning, probate, and guardianship practice. Prior to attending law school, she worked for the U.S. Congress, for two nonprofit organizations, as staff director for a member of the Texas House of Representatives, and in a program and policy position with the Texas Office of Rural Health Initiatives. In addition to her law degree, Leslie holds master's degree from the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs and a BA from Pitzer College. Welcome, Leslie. Of course, Michael. I just want to say first that I'm so happy to be here with you today. You're a great friend to NASCO, and you've been a great resource for us over the years. And I'm just happy to be um, on this podcast with you today. So in order to describe NASCO, we, as you said, we are the National Association of State Charity Officials. We've been around for over 40 years now, having been started in 1979 by a group of state regulators. Our members are all offices in the U.S. and the U.S. Ter territories that have some responsibility for charitable assets, charitable organizations, and or charitable solicitations. This includes, of course, state attorney general's offices, like where I am, as well as many secretary of state offices that do registration and registration enforcement for charities and charitable solicitors. It also includes some other state agencies, like for example, in Florida, it's the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services that has charitable oversight. But all of the NASCO members are employees of state or territorial governments. NASCO has four main purposes, to be a forum for the exchange of views and experiences about charity oversight, to provide continuing education to our members, 
to encourage interstate cooperation on legal and law enforcement issues, and to foster communication and coordination with the public, particularly the nonprofit sector. And we do that through several means. First is our annual conference, which includes a full day of meetings with state regulators and the nonprofit sector, as well as, as another day or so of meetings with regulators only. The last two years, of course, we've been virtual, um, but this year we plan to be in person in Denver in October. We also publish an annual report. It's a bit late this year, but we do have an annual report coming out for 2021. And then, of course, there'll be one for 2022. We have information on our website at nasconet.org. We meet internally to discuss ideas. We host periodic webinars in cooperation with the National Association of Attorneys General. And we serve as a convening mechanism for states who want to work together on joint enforcement actions. Leslie, in in that regard, I have two follow-up questions. One is relating to the role of NASCO in your educational material. Many of our listeners are chief legal officers or members of our client's legal department. Do you believe, as I do, that many of the NASCO materials are really excellent background reading for the CLOs? Why would you recommend the the NASCO materials to the the busy CLO who's got a ton of things to read, but uh, not too much on the charitable sector? Uh, How is the NASCO materials kind of directed to legal officers? Well, I think because we come specifically from the charity angle and not just, you know, general corporate or other organizational guidance. And we have lots of experience with charities and charitable solicitations. And we also work together on a lot of things. So you can assume if you look at information or guidance in one state, it's going to be quite similar to what another state might be looking at. And on that point, and we may be jumping ahead of ourselves in the conversation, but you, you've, you've mentioned several times this concept of, of uh, uh, interstate cooperation with your colleagues and other state charity officials and with federal law enforcement and other officials. Can you talk a little bit about the coordination that state AGs have and through NASCO and otherwise? Because I think many of our uh, listeners today are part of organizations that cross state lines and operate in multiple states and and how your work is relevant to that. Right. Well, NASCO really, that's our purpose really is to join state charity regulators together. And so we do a lot of information sharing amongst ourselves. And I, I, in my 10 years uh, doing charity work, I've seen just a huge dramatic increase in our efforts to coordinate and share information. Um, Sometimes this leads to joint enforcement actions, and sometimes it's just information sharing on guidance on, you know, how are you handling this issue? But I think that's a trend we're going to keep seeing, and it helps us be effective, and it helps, I think, the sector know a little bit more about, you know, what to expect. Of course, every state is different. Every case is different. Every matter is different. But I think that really helps us you know, by working together and coordinating together to bring some sense of stability and coordination to the whole effort. And even if we're not targeting an organization or organizations together, we often support each other in approaching problems. We also work with other state entities sometimes in other work that we do. I was able in one case to get some good background information from a state agency that was a grantor organization to a charity that I was 
looking into. And is my understanding correct, uh, Leslie, that NASCO also serves as kind of a communication forum horizontally amongst state charity officials so that our chief legal officers should assume that if an enforcement action of relevance takes place, let's say, in state A, that information will come to other state charity officials in time. They will be made aware of that, even though, as you say, in, in a particular state, the laws may differ. You share information about enforcement actions and interpretations across the NASCO membership. Absolutely. And, you know, people in the sector and the public can also look on our website for those enforcement actions in which there have been press releases or other, you know, public announcements about them to get a sense of what charity officials are working on. And that really goes, I mean, we'll take a step back now and kind of go return back to the basics. One of the questions that I have received historically from clients, not necessarily the chief legal officer per se, but certainly corporate executives and board members is, tell me again why the state attorney general cares about our business practices and why the state attorney general cares about what our board does and why the state attorney general cares about our purposes. Could you kind of review that again for our audience? Absolutely. This is the question of what is the attorney general doing here? Yeah. What is the state charity stuff? Any of it? Why are they involved right. in my business? And why is my lawyer telling right. me I've got to worry about the AG's perspective on this issue? Well, in general, uh, Michael, all attorney generals are charged with the unique and important duty of defending the public's interest in charitable assets and protecting the charitable funds donated every year and held by charitable entities. Um, we often describe our role as sort of parallel to the role or can be compared to the role of a shareholder in a private company. Shareholders are the ultimate owners of the private corporation, attorneys general, represent the ultimate beneficiaries, the public, of all charitable assets. And hold on right there, because I think that is it in a nutshell. Could you repeat that in a sense? Because what you're saying is, wait a minute, we, even though we're dealing with private corporations, it's essentially the, the citizens of the state are the ultimate owners of uh, the property. Are the ultimate beneficiaries of any charitable entity. So again, shareholders are the ultimate owners of a private corporation, Attorneys general represent the ultimate beneficiaries of all charitable assets held by any charitable entity. So we are the one representative of the beneficiary of, or the quote owner, if you wanna use that private term, of all charitable entities. As a result in most states, it's only the attorney general that has the authority and the standing to intervene and investigate misappropriation of charitable funds, breaches of fiduciary duty, self-dealing by directors, fraud and solicitations. And you're getting involved more and more, are you not, in terms of what I would call scope creep or purpose creep, where the purposes of the charitable organization grow beyond that's what's authorized in its articles of incorporation. Right. I mean, that is certainly one of the things we look at, and that's something that happens. We, you know, I think from my perspective, the first thing I do when I'm looking at an organization is I go back to its governing documents and look at what its purposes are, and then I look at how it's spending its money. In that regard, Leslie, can you speak to how the state charity officials and the attorney general 
get their information through, I know it's varies from different states, but I think it would be informative for our listeners to understand how you're able to monitor the vast array of charities in a particular state. Is it through state filings? Is it through media services? How do you get your information and how are you able to affect your enforcement policies? Well, a lot of states do register charities and charitable solicitors, and they get a lot of information that way. It's it's a you know an opportunity that data they keep on a regular basis. They know when people don't register, aren't doing something properly. I think a lot of states get information that way. I come from a state that doesn't do significant charity registration or registration of charitable solicitors. So our information you know might come from another state about a Texas charity. But we get a lot of information from complaints that come in. We get really them from everywhere. Complaints is one source. Press, we might read something in the press that we didn't know about and you know pursue that. Our office oversees lots of judicial proceedings involving charities. And sometimes through our review of an issue on one matter involving the charity, we'll be alerted to other issues going on with that charity. We learn from other states, like I said, might learn about a Texas charity from someone in another state that's run into an issue. I think more and more, we're also seeing some states using data analysis. Yes. To As the technology gets better and better and the data gets better and better, I think more states are going to be using um, data analytics to aid in their investigations, to identify you know, possible problems. Uh, let's see. We also have gotten information from other agencies or either even other parts of our own agency. I've had a case where the target had an issue with Medicaid fraud, and the key person involved in that fraud was also involved in a different charity. It's a really sad story, but an example of how information can come from lots of different places. Leslie, in that regard, I think uh, many of our chief legal officers listening in in the conversation have historically advised their clients on what, what I would call the optics, that, that the, this will look bad if it gets out in public issue and you need to get ahead of this. In other words, raising the question of perspective. Uh, and this is especially in the context of what, what I've always called now the new media, the uh, the ProPublicas, the stats, the investigative media sources that are even the Chronicle of Philanthropy that, that just are covers closely the healthcare and the charitable sector. How does state charity official evaluate the credibility of let's say an expose in ProPublica about a charity? or a complaint from a disgruntled board member of a charity? Is there some kind of program or, or set of criteria by which you judge whether or not the complaint or the story is credible and worth pursuing or worth making an inquiry? Well, we do our own inquiry based on that. Uh, regardless of where the source is, we may not even look into it if it doesn't sound credible or it doesn't even sound like anything we're interested in. But when we do look into it, and I, I think in Texas, we do some kind of due diligence review of every complaint that comes in. But we have our you know, public sources and you know, other sources, each other, as we've talked about, to see if we think the, the matter has any legitimacy or, or not. We can open our own investigation and, and gather documents and go a little deeper and see for ourselves. And do you do that typically by subpoena or something by a document request or what's the ordinary way? Yeah, I think pretty much most offices have some kind of subpoena power. We certainly have investigative rights for any 
filing entity in Texas, we can seek documents from them. Some organizations also have the right to do sort of pre-suit depositions, sit down with charity officials and find out, um, you know, ask questions directly. So uh, we do have those powers and and that's typically how we, we get most of our data once we have an investigation underway. A number of, of uh, charitable organizations that are compliance sensitive, as they often are interested in sharing information with the attorney general, in other words, running a courtesy notice, I just want you to know type of message. Is that something that's welcomed by the attorney general? In other words, it's a it's an information, it's, an, it's making sure the attorney general is, is aware of uh, a strategic initiative or something of that nature, perhaps not asking for an opinion, not asking for a response, but do you find that type of courtesy notice a useful means of communicating between the charitable sector and your office? in terms of kind of information sharing and everybody operating on the same level of information? Absolutely. I personally do. I would rather know more than less. And I appreciate the opportunity to learn what's going on in the sector, to learn what's going on with a particular charity. I'm always happy to sort of brainstorm potential issues that might be questions that we would ask or things that we might want the charity to be thinking about if they're making a particular move. In our office, we don't do a lot of approving of items, but we are happy to discuss with a charity, especially a, a big move or a move that they have some con- concerns about, and also to just brainstorm some ideas for what might be in the best interest of the charity. I wanted to say, I think this might be a good time to say our main goal in charity enforcement is to have a strong charitable sector. And we think one of the ways of doing that is getting rid of the bad actors, getting them out of the sector, but also strengthening the sector that's there. So I think the the kind of conversations that you're talking about, Michael, I think go towards that. I think in it's that mutual, regard, let, can be mutually beneficial. I'm I'm kind of curious in your long in your long experience, both as a private practitioner and as a state regulator. Have you been surprised by the uh, the number of bad actors that you come into contact in the nonprofit sector? Is is your education, is your messaging getting a better handle on that? Or is the question of charity abuse still a significant problem in states? I think it's still a significant problem in states. And I don't have a handle, and I wish I had a handle, but I don't have a handle on the size. But I think it's still very significant. Um, of course, where I am, I see a lot of the bad things and not as many of the good things. So I try to keep my perspective as positive as I can, but I still think that there's quite a bit of abuse out there. I think there's more potential for it through uses of technology and through ways that are much maybe more difficult to identify. But I also think there's lots of great things going on out there and I see lots of new good things happening as well. How do you all like to get your message out to you to this to the state and to the charitable organizations to kind of send the message that you, the charitable charities division wants to send in terms of effective charitable operation and governance? Are, are there favorite or ways that you found really get your message across effectively? Well, you know, different states do it differently. Some states have a lot of outreach activities. They do, you know, trainings and other outreach to the sector. They do a lot of speaking at you know, bar functions and other functions where they, you know, might find charitable leaders 
And we do a little bit of that ourselves, not as much as some. And I think that's a great way to do it. It's a great way to connect directly with the charitable sector. I think to the extent that states release press releases about their enforcement actions after they've happened, that sends a pretty strong message as well about what people might be interested in. We try to put, again, stuff on our website, the nasconet.org website about what we're looking at. And then more and more states, I think, are also putting guidance on their on their websites, as we've discussed. I think those are the main ways. In that regard, Leslie, for the, the listeners today who are serving in governance or in executive roles and who may not be as close to these issues as chief legal officers, are there a couple of examples that you'd want them to be aware of that would be red flags to your office, the kinds of business allegations of conduct or activities or board action or non-action that, that are real red flags to a state charity official, given your responsibilities for the charitable assets? Well, the real red flags for us, of course, are anything that has anything to do with the misuse of funds or the misappropriation of funds, including restricted funds. So I think we're always looking at the bottom line issues there at anything that could reek of sort of self-dealing and how that's been handled. I think we're always looking at whether the organization is has policies and procedures in place and is also following those policies and procedures. I will say that I think we look to the minutes of the organization to reflect that they've considered important matters, that they've undertaken their responsibility you know, duty of care responsibilities to oversee the program and financial interests of the organization. I think the misuse of funds is, I think, the number one thing that we'd be looking at. And that can be, you know, the money's going into your pocket or it could be excess compensation. In my experience, it's usually money's going into the pocket is the, is the worst of it. But also just to see that the organization is taking its mission seriously, is realizing that it, it has to be accountable. And I think we look for, you know, documents and and actions that support that. How does a charitable trust division deal with the enormous change that you mentioned technology, uh, the economy, others, but how change is affecting the operation of a nonprofit? You know, it's amazing to me, but in 43 years of practice, the charity sector and its operations always seem to be light years ahead of the laws governing, the statutes governing nonprofits. It's hard to catch up because the sector keeps changing. How do you and your office and NASCO kind of keep up with the evolution of the nonprofit sector? Well, I think the conversations that we have with sector, the the conference that we have, the opportunities to interact, I mean, we learn from the sector as well. That's who's sort of driving this. We're not driving it. We have our quarterly webinars where we try to educate each other about trends. And that's the basis for our staying on top of things. The charities division is not the only subset of the attorney general's office. Can you kind of scope out for our listeners how the attorney general's office is usually organized and other divisions within the AG's office who may get involved with charitable trust decisions or that you may team with in your office? Right. Well, one of the interesting things about charity oversight is how much it varies. So as you mentioned earlier, there's some attorney general's offices that have entire bureaus. There's other states where there's one person who, if somebody mentions the word charity, that person's going to get the file. That's the extent of their, you know, real charitable activity. 
in that state. So it does vary hugely. In our state, we work pretty closely with our consumer protection division. In fact, my group of charity regulators is getting ready to move in, back into with our consumer protection division. So we do work, work closely with them because so many of the issues are the same. I know, Michael, from your perspective, especially with respect to hospital transactions, you've had transactions where there might be a charitable piece of the attorney general's office looking at one thing and maybe the antitrust folks looking at something else. We typically would know that that's going on, but we have really different goals there. So I think we kind of operate through our own separate lenses. Then, Leslie, I want to come back to one point as we get close to wrapping up. You mentioned coordination with other states and with other elements of government. State AGs through NASCO have also coordinated with federal regulatory agencies like the FTC and, and some of your initiatives in the past. How does that come about? What kind of investigations and allegations go towards that multi-state cooperation? Again, with the recognition that many of our listeners are part of multi-state organizations themselves. Right. Well, I mean, I think NASCO is really critical to that piece of the multi-state actions that we are sort of the, you know, foundation for convening states that are looking into into different issues or into different charities in particular. The FTC has been a really close partner of ours in several multi-state actions. They mostly deal with the misrepresentation and solicitations issues. But I think NASCO is the point at which that happens and that begins in many, many cases. In that regard, uh, can you speak to what NASCO's priorities are for the coming year? What, what are you looking to addressing and what are you trying to hammer home with the charitable public these days? Well, I wouldn't be that upset if we just continue doing what we're doing. So that would be great. Continuing with our annual conference, our webinars that support each other, our you know continued use of available technology to support each other. And our, you know, continued work at looking at joint enforcement actions. I would like to see us expanding our partnerships and connections. You talked about the FTC, and I think we've talked about the National Association of Attorneys General. But we would like to reach out and be in partnership and in communication with other organizations. We have two kind of new initiatives. One is a policy committee for NASCO that's going to be looking at keeping our members informed of federal activity and of significant state legislation. Really excited about their work and their coordination to keep us informed about what's going on across the country. The other initiative that I think you might be interested in is we're really excited this year to also have a new special committee on hospital charity care and patient billing and collection practices. That committee is going to be looking primarily at reviewing charity care obligations across the country. We are going to compare data and we're going to look at the different state legislation and federal requirements. And I think that's going to be a great resource for all attorneys general, all states. Our goal there is not punitive. It's very educational at this point. We're trying to get our handle on what's going on nationally. And our goal is to get the care to those that need it and to meet the requirements under the law. Leslie, I'd like to end up with just kind of one, that last point that you were raising, and maybe uh, you can speak to our listeners just to kind of describe again from your perspective the role of NASCO and the state charity officials 
as more educational and informative as opposed to its enforcement role, because I think many board members, executives look at as the AG from its law enforcement perspective and not so much as, as the protector of charitable assets. Can you kind of summarize that for our listeners? Well, sure, absolutely. I mean, I think our, as I said, it's the public interest in charity that we represent. And that public interest is in having a charitable sector where donors can demonstrate their support for good causes by giving their time and giving their money. The ultimate, you know, missions are to reduce the burdens of government, provide goods and services that society wants to see. So the goal, again, is a strong charitable sector. And we want donors to feel confident that their support is being used for the purpose they want. So they'll continue to support that sector and we'll continue to get good care and good services and out of the charitable sector. In many respects, like a securities regulator who is interested and wants to make sure that investors can be confident in information that they receive from companies in which they invest and with investors also can be confident in the, the security of their investment as well. So going back to your original point about the shareholder relationship to the role of NASCO, Leslie, we thank you so very much. And I think uh, all of our listeners will agree that you've given us some terrific information on the role that the state charity official plays with respect to the oversight of nonprofit charitable organizations. It was also helpful that you briefed us on the role of NASCO, and I expect lots of our listeners to sign up and start paying attention to the NASCO website and look for your annual report and how NASCO coordinates both legal ed- education and enforcement on nonprofit issues. And I know that our listeners now have a much better understanding on how a nonprofit health system can and should interact with the state AG's office. So thank you so very much for joining us today on what has just been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thanks for having me, Michael. You bet. Thanks so much for joining us for today's episode of Governing Health. Be sure to subscribe to the full complimentary podcast series. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. There you'll be able to stay up to date with all our future episodes and to re-listen to the old ones. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Peregrine, saying thanks for listening. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, distribution or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.